Hello, space enthusiasts. You're tuned in to Space Forward. We're your host, Hussein Bukhari. And Kelly Kowalski. In this episode, we talk to a pioneer in the small satellite industry, the CEO of Spire Global. So I ended up working on Wall Street as a quantitative investment manager for almost a decade. And then to the utter shock of my friends in New York, um, left Wall Street and says, I'm going to go back, live in a dorm and study space. And I remember some uh, very interesting conversations with folks that set me down and says, you know, Peter, are you sure you're okay? And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely sure I'm, I'm fine. And off I went at the uh, young age of 42 to Strasbourg at the International Space University and got my degree in space science and management. Tune in now for episode 12, Leveraging Nanosatellites for Data Network Effects with Spire Global. Are you ready? Five, Five four, three, three two, <laughs> one. <laughs> blast off. Okay, blast off. Just as with dating, you have like 99 rejections for, for one, you know, second date. And it's hard to remember the 99 different rejections. What you remember is the date that you go on. So our guest today is Peter Platzer, and we're not necessarily going to talk to him about dating advice, but rather his success as CEO of Spire Global. Spire is a satellite company with the largest multi-purpose constellation that tracks our oceans, skies, and weather systems all over the globe. And what's interesting about Peter is he was one of the few space entrepreneurs who predicted early on the exponential growth and value of nanosatellites. Peter, uh, you know, before we take a deep dive uh, into your company, Spire, what I kind of want to know is a little bit history about you, but also about this initial idea for the company while you were at uh, at the Alma Mater ISU. You know, how did it kind of get started? Sure. So I'm originally from Austria, high energy and fusion physicist. Uh, I spent a little bit of time at CERN, spent a little bit of time at the Max Planck Institute, and always had this this fascination, this dream, this desire to leverage space to solve problems on Earth. Unfortunately, the industry was particularly slow and encrusted uh, back then, and that didn't quite gel with my personality. I mean, I have some kind of business since I'm a teenager, used to be in software because that's what I write since I'm a teenager. And so I just chose not to follow down that thought track of leveraging space to solve problems on Earth back then, but ended up working for the Boston Consulting Group in uh, Europe and then Asia, and then they sent me to Harvard Business School. And around that time in the, you know, late 1990s and early 2000s, you know, there's a couple of things that happened. The first thing was that I read a book, um, The Path by Laurie Beth Jones, where she leads you through a, a little process to write a mission statement for your life. And my mission statement came out to lead, inspire, and create the business of space for the benefit of all. And so while at Harvard Business School, actually with some classmates looked at space and it was just as encrusted as it had been a decade earlier. And so I ended up working on Wall Street as a quantitative investment manager for almost a decade. 
And during that time period, I ended up at a program what later became Singularity University on NASA Ames and had the great fortune of meeting people like Peter Diamandis and uh, uh, Salim Ismail and uh, Neil Jacobson. And, and in those conversations, I got convinced that maybe it's not just encrusted anymore. Maybe there is something happening. And so I did a little bit more research and then to the utter shock of my friends in New York, um, left Wall Street and says, I'm going to go back, live in a dorm and study space. And I remember some uh, very interesting conversations with folks that set me down and says, you know, Peter, are you sure you're okay, you know, um, uh, doing that? And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely sure I'm, I'm fine. And off I went at the uh, uh, young age of 42 to Strasbourg um, at the International Space University and got my degree in space science and management. And the, the mini thesis that you have to do there for me was around the exponential improvements of uh, nanosatellites and small uh, satellites technology. And for that, on one hand, I interviewed uh, about a hundred people from the space industry and asked them what's going to happen with those small satellites. And the answer was they're going to improve. It's going to be a pretty slow, steady improvement over a long period of time. They're mostly educational on toys and it's going to be a long time before that changes. And then I also got my hands on just about every paper that had the word nanosatellite in it, which was about 963 papers at that point in time. Today, you'd have to add probably one or two zeros to that, and it wouldn't be possible. But back then, it was still, you know, somewhat possible. And I looked at all the missions that had been created, starting with the invention of this standard form factor by Jordi and by Bob um, in, in 99. And when I looked at the performance of all of those missions and put them in a spreadsheet, what I saw was a clear exponential curve of 10x performance improvement every five years. And I think still today, actually, this is one of the most least known drivers of, of this transformation. But, you know, I plotted out what had been happening over the, over the prior 10 years. And then I plotted out what uh, capabilities will be of those small satellites, you know, five years out 2015 and another five years out 2020. And it was clear that with those kind of capabilities of power, bandwidth, uh, download, antenna um, sensitivity, uh, storage, all of this, you will have an extremely relevant scientific instrument uh, that can truly solve problems on Earth. And that was the foundation of Spire um, from, a, from a belief perspective. Okay, here's the technology. It is improving faster than Moore's law improved. The transformation that is happening in space is following one-to-one -one the transformation that happened from mainframe computers to personal computers. The analogy is just really, really striking. And that was then the starting point with uh, my two friends and co-founders, Joel and Yeroon, uh, to start the company in the proverbial dingy garage in San Francisco back in September of 2012. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's so much to unpack there. I think, I mean, what were the metrics that, that you kind of created that this is going to happen, you know, and what was the primary focus of the industry that you kind of looked at? It's like, okay. We're seeing a rise, but it's a steady rise, and then it's gonna be it's gonna be continually steady over the course of the next 20, 30 years. 
Like what was going through your mind? I had lived through the revolution from mainframes to personal computers. You know, at CERN, I had worked on a Cray 2 supercomputer that I now was carrying in my pocket and was trouncing the Cray 2 that we had. And it was so highly encrypted and access restricted that you couldn't telnet, which was the back then how you got into a, a computer, you couldn't telnet in from Vienna because the internet was so slow that by the time you got to type in that little code that showed up on your carry with your device, that code was expired, right? And so you had to like try it 15 times until just it lined up that you could type in your code when the code on the device was still accurate. And and now I carry something in a pocket that was so much, so much faster, right? I was I was in Vienna at a conference when the first 386 chips came about. And there was this guy that walked into our little cubicle with an aluminum suitcase um, uh, tied to his wrist with, you know, one of those handcuffs, right? Um, because that's how secret this thing was, right? So I'd lived through this transformation and I could just see this is exactly the same thing. And it's a little bit faster than Moore's Law. And I mean, I looked at as I looked at power, I looked at steering accuracy, I looked at compute, I looked at storage, I looked at data download, I looked at antenna gains, I looked, I looked at all of the things that are relevant to make a device in space solve problems on Earth. And they were all really, really stable. And I just projected it forward another 10x, another 10x uh, performance improvement. And it was, you know, in hindsight, you know, blindingly obvious. I think that's really uh, amazing, your predictions. And I'm going to fast forward to the future. And where do you see this, this, your predictions now going? Is there anything you can share with us in that regard? So there's, there's two things that I can share with you. The first one is, is that over the last 10 years, right? So Spire is now nine years, you know, let's call it 10 years. That trajectory of 10x every five years has stayed spot on. On the margin, it has gone in certain areas faster. So where I predicted that capabilities will be back in, uh, in 2010, will be by 2015 and by 2020, we aspire, but the industry in general, you know, we have reached and or exceeded those capabilities. And I don't see anything that is stopping um, uh, that progression. Um, to your second question, um, I'm going to tell the story of a poor chap that was on uh, a conference in the, uh, must have been the late 80s, and this personal computer was all the rage and um, uh, people were, you know, telling it is completely useless and there's nothing you can do with a personal computer. He said, no, you don't understand. It's improving exponentially, blah, blah, blah. And the uh, uh, the moderator, you know, somewhat snippishly and, you know, not, not too friendly is like, okay, but what's the killer app? Come on, tell us. Like, what do you do with this devices? I mean, the chairman of IBM says there's a world market of like, you know, three computers and you're telling us it's a big deal. Like, what's the killer app? Right. And, you know, sweating profusely and clearly being uncertain about what to say is like, well, you know, I think the killer app will be, well, it's going to be housewives that want to have recipes on their computer. And that's why you're going to have a computer in every household. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think there was a recording. Uh, so whatever he said, whoever he was, it is not found findable on the internet anymore. There is a recording here. So in 25 years, this still will be findable in some shape or form. So I'm just going to stop here and says, let me not be that guy that says it's going to be housewives on computers knowing exactly how today sitting here in 2020, that statement from like 30 years ago sounds. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. We don't. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe in the future we'll have housewives. You know, moving satellites. Or house around. husbands. Yeah. So maybe house husbands will be doing that. Who knows, right? Let's say that. 
Um, so actually, well, just going back in time now to 2012 and when you started, I, that's when you started Spire, as I understand it. And we were trying to imagine like what that time must have been like with the new commercialization of space. Uh, where, where'd you find the gumption to walk into that, your first VC meeting and, and what did you present and how'd you win them over? So there were a bunch of really interesting meetings because the concept of private satellite constellations was absurd at that point in time. There were literally two companies other than us in existence. One, which was a little known, Skybox. Another one, which was Cosmogia, that was secret and didn't have a webpage, now known as Planet. Um, and the third one, NanoSatisfy, operating out of a garage with a hamburger-making robot and the sex toy shop on top, um, now known as Spire. So there were absolutely VC meetings where, you know, uh, the VC partner somewhat smirkishly said, so how many satellites have you guys built? And we said, none. And he said, thank you, we'll get back to you. <laughs> you know, the first round is always, you know, you talk with angel investors and those are people that had made a difference in their lives by being early, inventing or building or creating something when in the uh, eternal worlds of, uh, of, of Peter Diamandis, a crazy idea or a stupid idea just before it become a breakthrough. We had two incubators that actually wanted to fund us. And the one that we chose was run by two MIT grads, uh, one who uh, should have played in the movie um, uh, Moneyball because that's what she was doing. She was phenomenal. Uh, and the other one was doing Star Wars at the US Air Force. So they, they had some of the right connections. And uh, I remember writing a business plan and sending it to them and telling to my offices like, this is never going to go anywhere. You know, they are like those hard nosed MIT kids, you know, they're not going to like this. Um, uh, and, and, and they did, you know, we had a meeting and you know, they asked some questions and I said, yeah, okay, we, we, we want to do this. And, and we started in their incubator uh, and, and they helped us. Uh, I think they were absolutely instrumental in getting the pitch right and understanding Silicon Valley speak, right? Because even though I had lived on Wall Street, I think the distance from New York to San Francisco in miles is the same as from New, as, as from New York to Vienna. And the distance in culture is at least also as large, right? I mean, Silicon Valley is so different from the East Coast that I, 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 I did not find my way around. And it's a very, very different environment. Interestingly enough, I have to say, though, that our largest funder for the first one and a half or two years ended up being a, a family office out of Europe. People with extraordinary uh, a vision uh, and, and phenomenal support were, were the largest funder for, for, for the first couple of years with uh, seed rounds. And then we did our Series A uh, with an East Coast VC a uh, phenomenal partner, phenomenal firm that had spent about a year with us listening and learning. And the story that we told from day one was pretty consistent and is still today. We are a data company and we collect data that solves problems on earth and data that is only and exclusively accessible from space. That was a very key criteria for us that what we do, what we collect cannot be done any other way. Um, the second thing we said is like, it's a constellation because our sustainable competitive advantage is a small device of which we can do many. 
So data that could be collected from one or two devices is going to be much, much harder for us to have a sustainable competitive advantage with. So it was uh, data that required a constellation. And then the third element was the device has to be software defined so that you can improve and change once it has been launched. Those were kind of like the, the founding principles of how we had built the company. And the thing that changed the most since those days is the name. You know, we're not NanoSatisfy anymore. The constellation is not called NanoGloda. The founder of AngelList at one point said he supported us. I was founded there. Um, and Naval said, it's the coolest company ever with the most horrible name ever. Those were his eternal words. And I think they were spot on. So we became Spire and, and the constellation became the Limo constellation. So it's really important to remember here that back then, just a decade ago, government space agencies were already tracking ships and flights and the weather, but at a much higher cost. So, for example, the U.S. government agency, NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, spends over a billion dollars on its weather monitoring satellites every year. But last year, in 2021, they were allocated just $15 million to acquire commercial weather data, which is but a fraction of their own satellite and weather data costs. That's definitely because companies like Spire have reduced the size of their satellites and increased their capabilities. But sure, back then, it's not surprising that Peter faced a lot of skepticism and rejection when he was pitching his ideas to the investors. Just as with dating, you have like 99 rejections for, for one you know, second date. And it's hard to remember the 99 different rejections. What you remember is the date that you go on. There's some funny moments, right? I mean, the one that I shared with you, you know, um, where they ask how many satellites you have built, and he says, none, and he says, thank you, we get back to you, right? You know, there was another one where, you know, we, we talked about um, weather prediction because we're doing the same thing, you know, since day one, right? We haven't changed, right? And we talked about weather prediction and we had made it past the analyst. So it was like, you know, the second or the third meeting with the senior partner. And as we were sharing the story, you know, the partner was getting, you know, a little bit visibly aggravated and he was hammering in his laptop. And at some point he just like turned the laptop around and says like, why do I need satellites for weather? And he slid the laptop across him and was like, here, www.weather.com. I got all the weather information in the world. <laughs> and I said, okay, but where do you think this information is coming from? And he's like, I don't know. It's on the internet. Wow. So, you know, like there were those funny moments, I would say. Uh, this was the days before, you know, people realized even in California that, you know, climate change and weather predict is actually useful because it's not always 72 degrees and sunny and, and the right temperature. And we were saying we do something, you know, that you cannot, you, you can only do from space. So we use radio frequency and we talked about weather and says like, what is this radio occultations, radio, what, what what's called occultation? How does this work? Right. You know, I don't really understand that. Right. Uh, and then people ask uh, some of their friends at NASA and they say, oh, what they're trying to do is going to break the laws of physics. Right. Um, uh, so what we tried to do was just really, really, really hard. Well, it's interesting that you say that, that it was hard, but it's also unique. So who did you go to that that was the first customer that were like, okay, you know what? You're actually going to want this, not because there's nobody out there that's going to be able to give you this granularity, but also because this is unique. So who was it? I've, I, I can't even think who the first customers were, but um, we never had the problem that 
people said, oh, explain to me why that is useful. The problems that we solve are like age-old problems. Ship owners don't know where their ships are, right? Captains don't know what the weather is going to be, what they're sailing into. I mean, those are problems like almost as old as humanity itself, right? The, the, the head of um, head of NOAA Research Lab or something like that, when I told him what we want to do with radio occultations, is like, if you do that, you solve weather prediction for us and for the world. So let me ask you this way, actually. Who was your first whale, you know, that, that you captured and you were like, okay, I think we're on a good track here. Yeah, so I would actually argue with that statement, to be honest, Hussein. There is a large number of companies that fail because they chase a whale, just like Captain Ahab, right? Instead of just building things reliably, they say, oh, I'm going to get this huge contract and it's going to come in next month and you just, just, just wait until next month and it just next month never comes. It's just like Godot. Uh, but we were not whale hunting. Okay, so one of the things that makes Spire Global unique is they don't take actual pictures, but instead use radio wave frequencies. Yeah, they gather radio occultation measurements to forecast weather and get unique data sets about our planet's surface and its atmospheric layers. They also collect data uh, to track planes, for example, ADSB, or also known as Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, and data to track ships, AIS, Automatic Identification System. So I can look at my phone right now and find out if my plane is on time or what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. And since you're the aerospace engineer between us, can you explain how radio occultation works? Absolutely. So basically, your satellites and ground-based transponders with antennas ping each other and measure radio wave frequencies according to how they refract or bounce through various densities. So you get an overview of data points to sort of paint a picture of what's happening for example, let's say in the atmosphere, you can collect data on humidity or wind for weather forecasting or data about soil temperatures to help farmers plan for the upcoming agriculture season. Got it. So unlike optical-based satellite systems, you can see or sense what's happening on Earth, even through the clouds. So let's hear now from Peter about how Spire puts this radio occultation to work. So Spire tracks all of the world's ships, all of the world's planes, all of the world's weather, collects this data and then runs uh, analysis and uh, AI machine learning and predictions on top of this analysis. And all of those layers are sold to customers as a subscription. And to give people a sense, when I say track all of the world's ships, that's about 90% of global trade, which is like some, I don't know, $20 trillion of stuff moving around. I think it's obvious all of the world planes, you know, uh, what, what that means, that's a, I think it's a, it's a two or three trillion dollar global industry. Uh, all of the world's weather, weather impacts about a third of the global economy. So that's another kind of like 30, 35 trillion as of today. The weatherman or the weather woman is still the butt end of many a choke because it's just not that accurate. And the reason is that we just don't have enough data because 80% of forecast accuracy is driven from space and traditional space just, you know, to launch and build a satellite takes a billion dollars in seven years, right? Or longer. We have been from day one. I still remember the moment I read the paper about radio occultation and the underlying math of radio occultation is very similar to the math of my thesis in fusion physics. 
where I developed a methodology to measure the dirtiness of effusion plasma. And the underlying idea that I described and had for my thesis is the same as, as basically radio occultation work. And I still remember reading it and telling to my wife, I think I found the killer app for, for those devices. Because weather impacts such a large portion of the planet, and despite the environment and some of those stories I just told earlier from VCs, you know, I was a firm believer that climate change is real and the data is absolutely convincing and unrefutable. Uh, and it is just a matter of time until everyone understands that this is a huge problem. And it can only be solved if you have more data, which means you have to have a large number of satellites, which means you need to have to have certain types of, uh, of data. And radio occultation is one of those fantastic data types because it has no instrument um, a calibration that is needed. It has very, very high accuracy. It doesn't have any drift. You can um, uh, combine it across satellites, across uh, generations of satellites, across types of satellites. So it has a lot, a lot of very, very attractive features to help humanity adapt to climate change. And I think that story is still something uh, to this day that keeps people at Spire incredibly motivated. It is a very mission-driven company and uh, that helping humanity adapt to climate change, helping our customers grow faster and more sustainably and more equitably is something that our products do and we're incredibly excited that they do. And so you asked me about some examples. There is uh, actually a European company that is uh, building the capability for wildfire uh, prediction and tracking and detection. And they have chosen Spire as the backbone of that infrastructure. That is a capability that you can only do from space on a global basis. Uh, and I think they will make a massive difference to humanity, uh, detecting those events sooner and, and helping them be, be more contained as we wrestle with an increase in occurrence of, of wildfire detection, right? Uh, the other one that uh, we felt very, very uh, excited about and created a lot of positive emotions at the company was at the beginning of the pandemic, as all the aircraft got grounded, uh, the big weather prediction centers lost access to an important data point driving weather prediction. And they were actually putting out reports. It's like, oh, you know, we have actually a problem. We're not going to be able to protect the lives and property of our citizenry as well because we lack this data. And so we approached them and we said, we're willing to give you data from us for free. But uh, to give you a sense of the urgency at which um, uh, the world operated here, this was a, an intergovernmental organization, 27 countries contributing to it, responsible for um, providing accurate information to, I don't know, a few hundred million people, over 20% of global GDP. Today, we serve with our data uh, a number of, uh, of government organizations that improve weather prediction for um, about half of the world, about a billion, a billion people. Wow, $20 trillion of stuff that gets shipped around the globe. That's a lot. I mean, sure, think about it. Every day, thousands of shipping containers with all kinds of goods arrive at seaports from countries all around the world. There's something like 7,000 shipping containers operating globally. And all these ships run scheduled routes like a bus or a train service. But to keep these critical shipping lanes running smoothly and efficiently, each ship has an ID as part of the Automatic Identification System or AIS to be tracked for its positioning. But traditionally, tracking is horizontal and at short range. How short? Something like 40 nautical miles or like 74 kilometers because it's essentially a coastal tracking system. But now Spire can track 
ships beyond coastal areas with their space-based AIS technologies. I get it. Satellites tuned into AIS tracking systems, so pretty much all container ships can be tracked around the globe. Sheesh, it's almost bizarre that only a handful of people figured out how useful satellites could be toward monitoring something that essentially nearly every Earthling depends on, the global supply chain. Yeah, crazy, huh? I vividly remember the board meeting where we told the, the software investor from Silicon Valley that we're going to build our satellites ourselves. Uh, and you could have heard a pin drop, you know, that, you know, in, in that moment, right? Um, and we proved to them on an iterative basis that we can do it faster, better, um, uh, uh, and cheaper than what is available in the market because the supply chain just does not exist. You know, we have launched, I don't know, 30 times, 150 satellites, I don't know, close to 400 hours because you can't learn it in a lab. You just, you just, you have to like build something, launch into space and see what happens. You know, we have a, a level of, um, of operational intensity and a level of experience and expertise that is extremely rare. Um, and I would argue in the particular type of satellites that we do for RF listening, there's literally absolutely no one in the world, which is even within an order of magnitude of experience that we have with regards to these types of satellites. And, and so, yeah, you know, that was like one of the moments. And I think Harvard Business School actually is just about to publish a case um, uh, around that moment when we told the board, uh, uh, you know, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna build satellites. And those are people that have, uh, stuck with Spire. They have reinvested on a continuous basis with Spire after that moment and have supported us and are, you know, still with Spire at, um, at, at the current point in time, uh, because it just proved out to be, uh, the right, uh, the right decision. You know, the success story of Spire, which you guys kind of have figured out, uh, through the very beginning. Ben Horowitz describes it in his bestseller, The Hard Thing About the Hard Things, famously, The Struggle. The phrase where everything becomes hard, where you get pushbacks when raising uh, when raising the company. Um, retrospectively, what could you have done better? And what kind of experiments failed that you look at in hindsight now that you kind of have improved upon or... You're like, I want to try this in the future, but now that I've learned. The hardest thing um, is hiring. By far, the biggest impact mistakes um, have been on the hiring side. Right? Think about it. Um, I think the, the, the psychological definition of a genius is like an IQ of 150. Right? When you calculate that out against 8 billion people, there's something like 8 million geniuses running around. 8 million, 8 million Einsteins. And we know like what, 50 of them? What about the other 7,950,000, you know? It just, it just, just, there is so much wasted human potential on this planet that we don't know how to find. Quantum physics is easy, hiring is hard. Interesting. <laughs> Humans are hard. Humans are hard, I tell you. People, people are hard. And my wife would tell you the same thing knowing me, so. <laughs> It's it's a, it's a challenging aspect of building out that the core products that you guys have built out essentially. Um, tell us some of those some of those scary stories if you could that you were like scratching your head and you're like how do I solve this? Very early on, uh, we we had our it was actually it was our first satellites, very first satellites, 
And they already had a, a weather sensor on board, GPS radio occultation. Um, and because operating a GPS in space makes it an ITAR controlled device, international traffic and arms regulation device, um, meaning that only U.S. citizens can enable the software switch that allows that GPS to operate in space. So, you know, we had put the, we had put the two satellites together and then, you know, about 90 minutes before shipping, uh, we figured out that, oops, we forgot to set that switch in one of the two satellites. So there we were, you know, having spent, you know, the, the prior months in putting this thing together, 90 minutes before shipping, uh, you know, what do we do? You know, do we launch something which we know 50%, you know, half of them is just not going to do what it's supposed to do. Joel Spark, you know, I ask him, he says, you are the wizard. Can you take this satellite apart? And then we had an intern from Cornell that was an American citizen, which could set the switch. And so he walked into the room, we closed the door and uh, he took the satellite apart. The, uh, the intern came in, she set the switch and he put it back together again. And we shipped them. And then FedEx lost the satellites. <laughs> so there we had 98% of the, of the balance sheet of the company in a shipping container with, you know, FedEx and tra tracking up the Vazoo. And for two days, they couldn't find them. They did find them. They made it on a rocket. In hindsight, you know, that, that sounds like a very, very funny story. <laughs> it's funny. One of the questions we did have was, did you ever lose a satellite? But I never imagined, I was imagining some sort of Hollywood version of losing it, uh, not from lost in the mail. But um, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about how your satellites work, how you can reprogram their reusable and, and how that affects space sustainability. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit to that, that idea. Sure. Our satellites deorbit the way they are built and launched within a few years time. So generally speaking, the, the paper bag you pick up in the supermarket takes longer to disintegrate fully than our satellites. That just has to do with how we launch and build and operate. But I wish that the movie Gravity wouldn't constitute 95% of the knowledge of the world with regards to space debris. You know, physics is actually quite useful in that sense, right? You launch something into 400 kilometers or 800 kilometers, that doesn't mean in 800 it lasts twice as long. It's like a thousand times as long at 800 kilometers, right? Versus 400 kilometers. And that's not easily understood, right? You launch something which is 10 times as large, it takes at the same orbit 10 times as long to deorbit. So size really does matter. The other thing that I sometimes, you know, uh, try to like share as a perspective is uh, space uses 100% of the surface of the Earth, I say, right? You know, in one um, uh, sphere, um, the oceans are only three quarters of the surface of the Earth, right? How many really, really large ships do we have on the ocean operating every single day without anyone remotely doing anything, right? It's about 300,000. We've got like, what, 5,000 satellites right now operating in space, right? And then you have like those different layers that you can use in space. So there actually is really, really plenty of room. Again, I'm not saying that space debris is not an, not an important problem. Pollution of the ocean is a really, really important problem just as much, right? For our part, at least, we tend to be better than the paper bag you pick up in the supermarket. 
Um, uh, and I think being able to reprogram them is a, is a, is a pretty smart idea as well because it allows us to uh, make them do different things without having to launch something new. So it really um, utilizes whatever we have um, very intensely. And then it's all multi-purpose anyway, right? So our devices have multiple sensors serving multiple mm -hmm. industries and use cases, which is another, I think, uh, quite quite powerful capability that we do. Yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, it, I, I think it did. I, I think the other thought was also about like uh, security, space security. Um, are you ever concerned about that with Spire? And how do you uh, overcome that potential challenge, I guess, or threat? So we have uh, government customers almost from day one. So building a highly secured infrastructure is kind of like part and parcel of how we have set things up with, uh, uh, you know, I'm not probably going to blast out on the internet, you know, how we secure our constellation. Um, mm -hmm. There is a, a substantial amount of thinking and, and design and uh, security that has gone into it. Um, at the same token, you also have to be aware of just like securing your house, it's an arms race, right? And if someone really wants to break into your house, then someone will be able to break into your house. Uh, and you just have to make it more difficult than it's worthwhile. And uh, I think I think that is an element that is happening everywhere. And, you know, it's happening on our side as well. Much of, many of our data is also not as easily usable immediately um, unless you know what you're doing, so to speak, versus an image. If you post an image on the internet, you can potentially have more impact, negative or positive, than if you post a radio occultation profile. Okay, so we've already discussed that Spire was ahead of the curve when it came to predicting the rapid evolution of satellites getting smaller and more efficient. Kind of like going from my clunky 90s desktop computer to my sophisticated cell phone of today. As well as building out their own hardware, the actual nanosats, and launching them as a constellation that's more capable of collecting a wider data set. Yeah, uh, they essentially created a holistic infrastructure from hardware to software that's dynamic and multi-purpose. Meaning? Well, dynamic meaning the software can process a lot of data with little delay and multi-purpose in that there's a broad set of data points that can be analyzed and upgraded as you go along. Ah, I guess just like getting a software update on your cell phone. Yeah, this is the infrastructure they started building a decade ago. So I asked Peter how they plan to stay ahead of the curve now. For us, it's like, how do we serve our customers in the best possible way? And, and how can we continue to innovate um, in anticipating what their challenges are and what their customers' challenges are so that we can help them grow faster and more profitably and more sustainably? And being able to redefine what our sensors do, how our sensors do what they do, and the type of data and the quality and the volume of data they collect is just one element of helping our customers succeed. Um, and we continue to push the envelope in that area. I mean, we started rolling out, it's now, I think a couple of years ago, uh, supercomputers onto orbit, teraflops of compute power, right? I think I once calculated um, that all of the satellites combined launch before Spire was founded have less onboard compute capabilities than that supercomputer we launched in a little five kilogram satellite. Right. So that you can do more and more in software, like you can change algorithms that make decisions on orbit. And I think being a, a software defined uh, 
based architecture is very, very powerful. I mean, uh, you know, what you guys are doing at Spire, it's uniquely um, fascinating when it comes to comes to the people that are at Spire. You know, um, you know, what's the what's the company culture? Yeah, we work in the space industry and that is very inspirational for a lot of people. We work in the big data and analytics space. That happens to be very hot. We, we deploy those capabilities against some, some big global themes like climate change. And I think there's just a large number of people that get really, really excited by doing something that clearly and obviously makes the world a better place. The other parts where I do think we can take credit for is that culture was something incredibly important to us from day one. And we went out and defined core values of Spire very, very early on. What matters to people's life and how do you create a meaningful career is something that I've done for a very, very long time, way before I started Spire. And so when we base our thinking internally on, you know, Pink's principle of uh, autonomy, mastery, purpose, and have compensation structure that, and, you know, that not just reward, but demand that people have autonomy, mastery, purpose. Some of the stuff that makes the experience of being at Spire special has been harder um, with so much remoteness. On the other hand, Spire has been designed as a globally connected company from day one. Like we, you know, people always ask me, Peter, where's your headquarters? And I say in the cloud, right? It's purposefully built this way. We don't want this satellite locations. Every single location is, is, is important, has an important memory. We do everything in every location. Now there is natural gravity to certain, you know, locations like, Boulder is weather. I mean, it's the weather capital of the world. Glasgow for us is, is, is space satellite design. But we do, you know, go and we have scientists in Luxembourg and it's just, it is designed as an office where teams span time zones from day one. And when the, you know, at, at, uh, at ISU, one of the things I did there was I, I ran this, this team project and we were working on space for climate change. But because the time frame was, I think, 2050 or 2040, you know, we had to make predictions about what technology will be available. How is the political landscape going to, to look like? Um, what is going to be the economic landscape is going to look like? And the world of 2050, based on those numbers, has nothing to do with today's world in terms of which countries are the most important ones. And so when we started Spy, we always looked at, you know, let's build something for the next 50 years. Let's build something for the next 100 years. And so we, we looked into those directions. Like it has to be relevant for how the world is going to change. And for me, being able, being allowed to spend every single day of my, you know, not every single day, but sometimes it is every single day, uh, with, with a team that cares about doing something for the whole world and that really do have that idea of the world is not just a country that I grew up in, let alone the continent that I grew up in, right? It's just really much, much broader. That's very, very special. That, that I mean, for me, at least, this is very special. Amen to that. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about the future of Spire. I mean, at the moment, you're strictly focused, or at least 
from a public perspective of what we know is that you're strictly focused around the globe and supplying uh, as much data as you can. Do you have any ambitions to apply your technologies uh, beyond to other planetary bodies or future missions? I think it's fantastic that other companies look beyond Earth. And it's super inspirational to talk about Venus and Mars and Moon and asteroids. So one thing which is really important for us at Spire is leveraging space to solve problems on Earth. There's 8 billion people, 100 trillion GDP, and massive opportunities and challenges right here on Earth. Oh. Why aren't why aren't you concerned about the little potential organisms on the plumes of Enceladus? I mean, those poor I guys. I want to see them. I want to see them. I would love to see them. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> okay, you just mentioned that you're pretty much sticking to Earth here, but is is there any kind of sort of wacky, crazy idea that you could foresee in the future for either for your company or perhaps for, you know, the whole space industry or humanity's evolution here in outer space? Um, is there anything that like, if you just could reach for it, no matter how wacky and insane it is, what would it be? So it's going to sound funny what I'm going to share with you. I firmly believe that there is high possibility of us identifying uh, life in our solar system. And I think it would be incredibly valuable for lifting the mental sphere of, of humanity by being confronted with that reality, not in a philosophical way, but in a scientific way. And I think, you know, there are people that are putting together a, a mission to Venus for like, I don't know, 10 million bucks, right? Um, uh, there are people that put things together for Mars and know people are talking about Enceladus. Um, Europa, there's another moon that just was discovered as most likely having a liquid ocean underneath, you know, from Saturn. Uh, I forgot the name right now. There is more and more possibility for private individuals to actually make a difference in the exploration of our solar system, given the technology that is available in private hands. And the numbers have become, you know, literally like the, the, the three or four richest men on the planet have a piggy bank of a trillion dollars. We're talking about missions for like 10, 20, 50 million dollars. You know, I mean, like they could do a thousand of them, so to speak. So I do believe that the, that the combined capability of humanity to explore the solar system and look, identify and find life has never in the history of humanity been as large as it is now over the next 10, 15 years. And my hope is that my children will see something and that their generation will see something like a little video that says, here, see how it, how it moves, right? Microbes. There is life. There's life not just on Earth. And I think that could have a shift in the thinking of humanity, similar to maybe when we recognize that, no, we're not the center of the solar system. And I think that is just would be a, an incredibly inspirational shift in how we think of ourselves, the role that we play in the, in the greater universe and how we should protect what we have and how precious and valuable it is. I 100% agree. There you go. So Peter, I kind of want to, um, I mean, uh, we would love to, to wrap this up. You're about to celebrate 10 years of existence as a company. You know, statistically, uh, you are 
you're reborn by your stock listing, your IPO. So congratulations on that recently. You know, uh, there was a research done in Sant- by Santa Fe Institute in 2015 that 10 years are the typical half-life of a stock-traded company. And the typical death is due to a merger and acquisition deal. So, I mean, you don't have to worry about that for the next 19 years. And we at Space Forward as a team are sincerely hoping that you're one of those outliers. So thank you so much. Thank you for spending the time. It was wonderful to to talk and chat and tell a little bit of our story, of my story. Uh, Keep doing what you are doing. Listen to people and tell it to the world. The more, the more people that get inspired to do something special, the better it is. As we said, there are 8 million Einsteins and, and geniuses out there, and they need to be found and inspired to do something with that genius. So Kelly, do you know this music was sent into space? 1977. Yeah, almost 45 years ago. So here's a question. If you were going to launch a new golden record, what music would you put on it? Hmm, that's a really good question. Uh, let's see, Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys, or here's one, Sally Ride uh, by Janelle Monet. Very good choices. Well, on our next episode, we're going to talk to some of our colleagues from the International Space University's Space Studies Program, who were asked to figure out that same question. Oh, they were? You mean what music to play to aliens? I mean, more like if we do a Golden Record 2.0, what would we put on it today? Okay, Uh, but I say until that next episode, I challenge our listeners to tell us what song or songs they would put on this new Golden Record 2.0 playlist. Go for it, guys. Drop us a line about what song you put on the Golden Record 2.0. Yeah, and maybe we can choose the top 10. What do you say, Hussein? Can we fit 10 songs on our theoretical Golden Record? Oh, of course we can. All right, all right. So the top 10 songs as suggested by our listeners, but of course, biasly chosen by our team, Space Forward. Oh, yeah. There'll be a bias because while we're all humans, we are not humanity. Oh, yeah, we are only human. So tune in for our next episode about theoretically sending our next golden record 2.0 into the cosmos. Eternal Echo. Our next episode. Eternal Echo.